Life Audio. Faith Over Fear is brought to you by Life Audio and is part of our Faith Toolkit series. For more inspirational, faith-affirming podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Welcome to the Faith Over Fear podcast, where we tackle our most pervasive fears with truth. Because life is too short for any of us to live enslaved. We would love to connect with you online. Just visit our show notes to learn how to connect with us. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. I'm Jennifer Slattery, and in a world where everyone seems to be sharing their highly edited lives on social media, it can be hard to share our mental health struggles with others. We may fear people will judge and reject us or use our weaknesses against us. While we shouldn't share all things with all people, Jesus created our souls for deep connection based in part on vulnerability. We will only feel loved to the extent we feel known. So how can we overcome the fear that tempts us to isolate ourselves while forming those safe, supportive, and growing relationships with others? Well, this is a challenge to which my guest today, Josh Lilly, is well accustomed, as he not only battled depression as a Christ follower, which at times can feel confusing, but also as someone who's on staff at a large church as well, a role that can come with pressure, real or assumed, to appear as if one has it all together and never struggles. Well, Josh, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jennifer. So Joshua is a passionate follower of Jesus, spreadsheet enthusiast, and lover of all kinds of art and music. He has almost a decade of experience in music ministry and has served both in-house church and megachurch environments in pastoral and administrative roles. He's eager to see every man, woman, and child increasingly surrender their lives to King Jesus. He currently serves on staff with Christ Community Church in Omaha, Nebraska, and as an ordained minister with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, a global denomination of Christ followers making him known among the nations. He is also part of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast team, which you can find on lifeaudio.com or wherever you access podcast content. Well, so to start, did you grow up in the church? Yes, I I did. I grew up in a small town going to a small church that my parents dragged me to for my formative years. And then it was later, it was around high school. I was 16 when I took my faith more seriously. Okay. And when did you first realize that you battled depression? Yeah. And that question of when I first realized versus when I first was experiencing or showing 
symptoms of it are kind of interesting because it was a large gap. I know typically we expect these things to surface at a certain stage later in life, but I remember, and I guess before I say this, I do want to say there's maybe a slight trigger warning to some some listeners, just with the nature of some of the things we talk about here, but also that I don't claim to be the total expert or the only story. And so there's whether people have experienced a lot of these symptoms much more tangibly or physically, or even in a much smaller scale that doesn't make your experience more or less significant. I will say it was surprising to look back and think it was, I was in third grade when I remember climbing up into a tree and trying to tie a jumper up around, around my neck. And that was so long ago. I don't know if it was just a cry for help for attention or some genuine place of despair. But in middle school, I remember moping around a lot. And my mom, who is just somebody I'm really close with, I'll keep bringing her up probably, commented on how I just looked so sad all the time. But it wasn't until high school when my mom dragged me to my first therapy appointment and I was kicking it the whole way. So I did not want to acknowledge or admit that there was a problem. Why do you think? It's, it's an interesting mix because usually there's a lot of people battling external shame and that certainly comes and comes even from a lot of contexts, unfortunately. But I definitely had a really strong personal sense of shame and conviction that I would admit weakness or I would, yeah, I was just, I was afraid to admit it for myself. There's this deep sense that if this was true, then I was less, mm, mm. maybe that came from my environment or maybe that just came from within but... or our culture. Yeah, I think we have this culture that you have to be strong and successful by whatever the media determines success that that generation. But so initially, did you share it with others or, or like when did you really start kind of sharing it? And, and what did that look like? Did you share it with one person and then that felt safe? And so you shared it with another kind of walk us through that. Yeah. And so before I actually felt I didn't feel confident to share it in I think healthy or helpful ways until college years when we started exploring that. But obviously, if you don't have the words or the tools to deal with something and babies scream and cry when they're hungry or animals whimper when they're hurt and they don't speak language. So I would say I was definitely giving off signals, sharing it in ways, you know, maybe that was that experience in third grade with the jump rope. Middle school and high school, I had that close group of friends that you can count on one hand that we all knew that we were a hot mess. But in high school, I think, you know, my family couldn't avoid it. And so there's a way that you kind of have to talk about it a little bit. But again, I did not know how to helpfully dialogue it probably until I started talking about it in college. Yeah. So in high school, you're part of youth group, I imagine. Yeah, I, I went to a youth group because I had a crush on a girl. Then, <laughs> and then I started following Jesus a few months later. In your youth group, did they ever talk about things like anxiety or depression or mental health? Not that I can remember, no. And I don't think that's uncommon. I think it's getting more common. We're, we're talking about it more, but yeah, I don't think we always do enough. When you and I were kind of talking about just your experience and today's topic, you had mentioned how you found encouragement through the story of an 18th century hymn writer. And so tell us a little about just him and what it was that made that really resonate with you. Yeah, it's kind of a deeply nerdy thing that I like to investigate authors and songwriters so deeply. And this one kind of struck me when I came across a song that I really liked shortly into my years of following Jesus um, by this band called Citizens, and it was titled There Is a Fountain. And it was pretty upbeat, but the words were kind of, you know, strange. And so the full title of that hymn and its traditional writing is There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. 
And the first line continues, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And it goes on and all these kind of grotesque, but also strangely, like, hopeful, beautiful lyrics. And this was a guy who also dabbled a lot in, like, just poetry in the secular market, inside and outside the church. And so I looked back a little more and I found this guy, William Cowper, who wrote this. And again, 1700s, 18th century, a total hot mess of an individual. And I know we usually think of a lot of this honesty or authenticity about the struggles different people deal with. Deal with. We think of that to be more maybe of a recent thing or a young thing, but it showed me kind of more how some people just couldn't hide it. And so it wasn't that new of an experience to have a total hot mess of a person spanning through history, heck, stretching back into the biblical story. That seemed to be a purpose between a lot of the people that were told about in the story. So William Cowper, he grew up, I believe it was in England, with a lot of big professional and career aspirations. I mean, he was art and poetry was something he was trying to cut his teeth on. And he studied to practice law. But a lot of these opportunities kept passing him by because he would get struck with what was, quote unquote, madness. Because before they had licensed counselors and those programs and a lot of the language we have today, the developments of mental health and mental awareness, it was all just probably called madness. You know, I don't claim to be a historical expert here. A lot of this you can just look up on Wikipedia or hymnary.org or other things. But William Cowper was in and out of hospitalizations, various attempts at his own life. Wow. But he would talk about how God seemed fit to keep him there. He had a profound experience with Jesus that started his uh, walk with him. But it was a rocky road. And it's mm-hmm. not a story that has a clean or tidy bow tied on it. And so here's somebody who could very easily be posed with that same question that I was mentioning earlier. If I admit to this, or if this is what I experience, then I am, then there's weakness or then I'm, I'm less than, or there's something. So there's, there's this terrifying reality that he was face to face with for his whole life. And yet in times of clarity had the courage to pen words like in that strange, but beautiful hymn that I resonated with. So I felt a kinship to this guy and it, again, it gave permission and saw how it wasn't, you know, wasn't, I'm not the only one dealing with this or the only, you know, it's not that new. Like, it's kind of like, okay, there's some solidarity there. So like normalized it a bit, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And it helped me emotionally process and experience it kind of reaching back even into history where you think all oh, those old people don't know anything, yeah. you know, like way back in the 18th century, like, huh. Yeah. He was even friends with John Newton, who was a deep, I think, spiritual friendship for encouragement. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace and has his own rocky backstory. So it's kind of cool to see how people spoke into this guy and how I've had people speak into me. Yeah. Wow. When I think, too, it's it's helpful to recognize I will hear people like when they email me or message me, they will feel like God's mad at them that God's left them, that their faith should be stronger. And so it's always encouraging to me to see people who had a very close relationship with Christ, like the man that you just mentioned. And then somebody I admire is Charles Spurgeon. And so he was a 19th century preacher, and he suffered from depression for so many different reasons and throughout his life, actually. And I want to read a quote. This is from Clayton Craby from Reasonable Theology. He wrote, quote, by 1863, Spurgeon's sermons had already sold more than 8 million copies. At the time of his death in 1892, 50 million copies had been sold. By the end of the 19th century, more than 100 million sermons had been sold in 23 languages. Wow. A figure unmatched by any preacher before or since. Today, this number has reached well over 300 million copies. A century after his death, there were more works in print by Spurgeon than by any 
other English-speaking author. Spurgeon is history's most widely read preacher, end quote. And some things I really admire about that. First of all, obviously God's anointing was on this man. Like he had such impact. And he was also very open about his struggle. And so I think that's just a reminder to us when we think, okay, well, I must be far from God if I'm struggling in this way. Well, there are some people in history, Jeremiah too, the prophet Jeremiah, you know, people in scripture even who have suffered from anxiety or depression. And he used that, like I said, to speak to others, to encourage others and and I sense you you kind of do the same. Actually, I've picked up on that just from getting to know you. And so how has your experience with depression impacted your interactions with others, your compassion, and the way you talk with them? Yeah, no, definitely. Well, and there's a, a, wor- a worthwhile contrast to note in answering that question. Before I found faith in Jesus, I was simply wrestling with it in a way that caused me to fear other people, to withdraw from other people, to hide it shamefully. And it's not that it instantly was uh, cured or now I'm open to talk about it, but I would say because of a foundational hope restored, Um, and the message of Jesus, an ongoing faith, living faith that gripped me when I was 16 years old, I suddenly started being a little less afraid of it. And it turned what was a lion into something a little more domesticated, although it still certainly had claws. And so my interactions with others, once this faith in Jesus made itself a part of my life, certainly equipped me with more compassion. And it definitely helped me identify with Jesus in some ways, because if you look at the gospel story and the life and the message he gives, it's so strange and subversive when the people in that context wanted some conquering hero to free them from Roman rule. It's in the first century, Israel. He was saying things like, give the person who robs you your shirt, the shirt off your back, or turn it off from the next cheek when they strike you. And it's this weird idea of you want to know how to conquer Rome, and it was leading with weakness. In fact, like the whole culmination was he died. It, like, let them kill him. That's subversive, and that's strange, and that's been a core thing all of a sudden to see how God led with weakness, at least to even come down beside me, who's somebody who felt very lowly in many points of my life. And one, it was dignifying. Two, it was empowering. And three, when I'm asked to be like Jesus, then I see Philippians 2 of, you know, have that same mindset and considering the interests of others before yourself. So there were times where, especially when I was just left to wrestle alone with depression, it was very inward, insular, and self-focused. Once the lion shrunk down to a bobcat and maybe a little bit of a house cat, not saying that it doesn't ebb and flow and grow a little larger over times, I can start considering others before myself. God's equipped me with compassion and really to load it with some of the experiences I've had to uh, give permission to help people feel confident and safe and free to express it, to not carry around fear and shame like they're something lesser simply for experiencing it. And then even some of the more practical things like how do you handle medication or those things? And and so just just the freedom Mm -hmm. coming from a place of freedom. You know, you're kind of in bondage to the thing when you don't know what you're doing with it. And then again, even if people think it needs to all be made right instantly, if nothing else, Jesus gave me absolute freedom where other people, other worldviews didn't. 
Wow, that's really good. Well, speaking of Jesus and just what he showed. So I know I, you talk a lot about Psalm 22. Is that like one of your favorite Psalms? Yeah, especially for the past year. I mean, it, it comes up a bit. You might hear it in a Good Friday devotional if you ever listen to those. So I should I should probably let the listeners know, who those who don't know. So Psalm 22, it has a, a dual meaning. So it was written by ancient Israel's second king, man named David. But also scholars believe it, it, well, Jesus quoted it on when he was dying on the cross. So it also has a dual meaning of Christ's death and what he suffered. And so would you actually just read a bit of that? Yeah. And so I may jump around just a little bit because it's a long psalm that's definitely worth reading in its entirety. So maybe read it on your own. Yeah, read it on your own. Psalm 22, a psalm of David. Yeah. And so when you hear it, no, it's very much like a, if you ever listen to a specific genre, emo music, you know, it's a, which is just an abbreviation of emotional. I mean, it's a heart cry song from David. But what Jennifer is talking about with scholars is it ironically ends up being a prophecy or a prophetic song of Jesus that he picks up on, at least on the cross. So you hear David crying out when he's persecuted and hiding in caves from somebody, current king, seeking to kill him in a place of despair. In verse one, he says, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. He goes on to this in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. The herald insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And it continues on in the next verse to recount certain ways that he knows that God has delivered his ancestors or proven himself to him. He also goes on to talk about the afflictions. He says things like many bulls surround me, which is poetic language to talk about. Roaring lions that tear their prey. I'm poured out like water. My heart is turned to wax. Dogs surround me. All sorts of things. It's just building this level of hopelessness, but also this level of trust and confidence. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. I know you can do this. Where are you? Sort of this question coming. And it builds not to some clear picture of God then swoops in the moment, but this resolve that David has, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. This is verse 26 now. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. He's getting now to a future thinking, future generations. This is where it gets a little more like a prophecy that Jesus fulfills. But we're about to come up on a verse here that has one little offshoot phrase that I latch onto. And honestly, could be taken totally out of context, but it's special. When we get to verse 29, he's contrasting all the people, rich and poor alike, who will worship God. It says, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him those who cannot keep themselves alive. And he goes on in verse 31 to say, they'll proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done. 
A phrase at the end of verse 29, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Could have been referring to a number of things, injured, destitute, people dying of starvation or falling in battle. Maybe he had a, a picture of it in his mind when he wrote this, but I want to think of William Cowper in and out of hospitalizations, multiple attempts on his life saying, God saw fit to keep me around. I think of somebody who might not have been able to keep himself alive. When I think of me as a third grader climbing into a tree, for some reason thinking maybe I can take my own life at this young age. There's this level of, again, that idea of scared to admit weakness. Well, I don't need to be scared to admit it because this whole promise in Psalm 22 is for me if I fit into that last line of verse 20. So that's where it became a little powerful because when it connects to Jesus, he's using it as a victory psalm. And yet here I'm seeing this way that connects with my weakness and despair and invites me into this victory. I want to say to those who are listening right now, who that line really resonated with you and that part of, of Cowper's story really resonated with you. If you're like, I don't know if I can hang on. Why should I hang on? I hope you hear in this episode, God saying to you, hold on. Can you read that line again? Yes. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. When you feel like you're somebody who can't keep yourself alive or you're crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to know that you are surprisingly closer to Jesus than you realize. Beautiful. Beautiful. So speaking of that, you you mentioned, you know, the, the opening line, why have you forsaken me? And we know God didn't forsake David, but he felt that way. Yeah. And so have you ever, because we know God doesn't forsake us, right? Like we forsake him. He doesn't forsake us. Have you felt that way in, when you're like really struggling? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when you are in that place or when you feel like he's not listening or doesn't care, because I know sometimes, at least for me, when I'm in an anxious state, I can't hear God. Like I can't, my, my thoughts are just spinning. Like not, that's not a worshipful experience for me. So when you're in that place, what do you do? Well, something that my counselor says often of perception is reality. And that is at least true for the experience of each individual, what they're feeling. Really, it does encompass all of my focus oftentimes. You think, for David, somebody who the scriptures call a man after God's own heart to be crying this out, it had to be overwhelming his senses and his feeling. We often feel like, we attribute it to, you know, a lot of conservative Christian culture or things, something that suppresses doubts or suppresses emotional honesty. But at least scripture, authoritative source for my belief and faith in Jesus, is giving me this unashamed permission to feel what I'm feeling and to vocalize what I'm feeling. That permission is grounding when I feel like I've been forsaken. It also gives me the sense that God is not unfamiliar with what I'm feeling. The same way when I read Cowper's story, I feel a sense of kinship. Well, now to actually feel forsaken is ironically giving me this kinship with God, who apparently his work, his life, death, resurrection, experienced much the same and draws me into it. And so when I feel like God isn't listening or doesn't care, just as David did in the psalm, he seemed to remember what he knew to be true. And he seemed to go back to God's characteristics and identity. And let that inform his circumstances rather than the other way around. Yeah. So can you just read, like, where do you pull that up from? Just re re to remind us. Yeah. So Psalm 22, 
Verse 3 is the first time he breaks off into that. This is what I'm experiencing, but yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises, and you, our ancestors, put their trust. So you've saved other people before. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved, just as I'm crying out right now, you know, that sort of thing. Even verse 9, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. So he's like, I have this lifelong experience with you, God. I know this to be true. It's not what I'm feeling right now. So he's wrestling with this mm-hmm. tension. It's something that is emotionally messy. And again, it's cool just that scripture gives gives us permission. It yeah. puts it on display. When I, I think too, so you know, when we bring it back to his character, just looking at that, like he says he's he's holy. So what does that mean? That means he always says what's right. He shows no favoritism. He loves us faithfully, consistently, and unconditionally. And I, I often encourage people to trace out the proclamations that, that their fears and things are making. And so if we think, okay, well, God must have abandoned me. That's why I feel this way. Well, then we would have to say that his love is conditional. And does that sound like the God we know in scripture? And so I love how you brought that up, just how David continually, yes, I hurt. This is hard. This is who God is. Yes, I hurt. This is hard. God, this is who you are. And so how has that, like for you, do you reflect on God's character when you're in a rough period? Yeah, definitely. And I'm going to verbally trace out this chart. If I had a whiteboard and there was a camera, you'd see me writing all this out. I had some deep friends in, when I lived in Georgia of my faith community there, church family, who would make a little chart with four columns. First two were kind of I am or what or about me. The second two were God does or God is. It was about God. So columns were I do, I am, God does. God is. And I put it that order because that's, first off, the wrong order, but it's how you often first feel it or how you see the psalmists tend to start when writing emotional songs uh, and heart cries to God. This is what is going on around me, either what I'm doing or what I'm experiencing, and it's affecting how I view myself, a sense of identity. And then if I let my circumstances, experiences, or actions, failures inform my identity, I'm going to start looking at God as either cruel or inflicting it on me. I'm going to start to view his actions, activity differently, which is then going to change the way I view God's core characteristics and foundations. Psalmists often, halfway through, whether it's David or one of the Levites, will always make a switch at some point in when they lay out how they're feeling and how it's making them shake a fist at God. And they make this switch. It's very intentional. They say, but this is what I know to be true about you. And they start with who God is. They say how this is then what God does out of his identity. And then they say, well, that means this is who I am. So this is what I will do. You heard David say it. I will praise you in a great assembly. There's different simple action steps they say. In light of who I know are God's foundational characteristics to be true, this is how it drastically repaints my reality. doesn't mean I dismiss or don't feel what I'm feeling. In fact, that's how they start but it definitely gives them something more sure and a sturdier foundation to navigate. I think too, for me, when I am just, I just like telling God everything that I feel, I experience him in that. And then it helps me make the shift. It's like, as opposed to going to, you know, somebody else and having this conversation, when we bring our emotions straight to God, I think we then, we are open to his guiding presence and his, his truth and, and how he speaks to us uniquely in that moment. But so think of too when, cause he, in that Psalm, 
he talked about, you know, the people are encircling me and they're mocking me. And so people were not treating him well. And we know people did not treat Jesus well either. And it sounds like you didn't have a, a really negative experience when you did share your depression. Did you ever have like where people are like, okay, go pray, sweetie, just go pray. Yeah. Yeah. So I have in different contexts, you know, had people try to cast the demon out of me. Was that painful? I think graciously for me, I think I was later on in my journey to have the confidence to, to know where to place it. It didn't, fortunately, it didn't paint it in such an irreparable way that I distanced myself from the church. It was people trying to do with what they knew, whether they had the tools to deal with it, you know, but... What would you say to someone who's experienced that, who said, if you have faith, you will be, what would you say to them right now? I say, look at David. Mm -hmm. Say, look at Jesus. Say, look at William Cowper. Mm -hmm. We have plenty of instances of people faithful to God Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with ongoing challenges. And I would say too, that Jesus grieves that. Jesus grieves deeply when people in his name inflict pain. So I... So it's okay if they grieve that as well. How can reflecting on God's character help us to remain anchored in grace when others treat us with rejection or maybe try to cast demons out, whatever it is they try to do with our vulnerability? Yeah. So like I mentioned in that kind of verbal chart or table with four columns, sometimes it's worth even journaling that out. That's why I mentioned it being written on a whiteboard. I would write this out. I'll write it down. I'd say, starting with the experience how it could be repainting how I view God. Usually I'd end up with some horrible conclusion about it. And then I'd say, well, this is what I know. And let me then repaint the picture. And there's even just a practical part of that, you know, that you experience if you've been to counseling is often pairing the right brain and the left brain. Sometimes when you're feeling something, to name it is just something that connects the rational part of your brain with the experiential part of your brain. That's enough to help tether it, anchor it, make it more attainable. So explain what you mean, but for someone who hasn't heard that terminology, so when you say name it, what do you mean? When you are angry, saying, I am angry. Because think about this, how many experiences where somebody's exhibiting these things, and it's maybe in the height of the moment, there's somebody that maybe they don't have their relational equity, or they say it in the wrong tone. Why are you so mad right now? I'm not mad. That's the opposite. But if I can to myself, even verbally, like use your brain to shape your words and say it, I'm angry. Wow, that makes me sad. Literally connecting it in that rational way is just one simple tool. And there's ways to get a little more specific too into just sharing the emotion with yourself. But there's that there's that tangible way of verbalizing it. It's just one practical way in a larger spiritual manner to then go through that same way like the psalmist does. I wonder if the psalmist would be good at that, you know, writing it out and vocalizing it, journaling it out. That's kind of what each psalm is. I think it helps anchor them in God's grace, God's promise and assurance. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, I do think we, we do have to be careful, especially someone who's coming out of a, some, well, some of our listeners actually have been in religiously abusive situations. So somebody who's coming out of like a cult environment or who has endured religious abuse or who just has been deeply hurt by the church, they do need to be a little careful who they share with probably because they may not be at a, I mean, you were raised in a Christian. It sounds like your mom was loving and nurturing and supportive. So even though it was still hard, you probably didn't have some of those wounds coming in that some of our listeners may. And so 
not everybody will be a safe person for them to be vulnerable with. So how do we know, what are some things we can look for when we're determining, like, is this a safe person I can be real with? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I can certainly share some examples of the people I've had and some of the things they've said to me that have helped reinforce that these are good people to speak into and a few other ideas of, of what to look for. Even So even my mom, while she was supportive in ways, she didn't always have the best words for it. And I know before I had faith in Jesus, we were just an escalating course that would end in explosive arguments. And even much later, I remember... I'll, Every parent and teen, I do have right? to say, but go ahead. <laughs> and so she would open her mouth and then I'd say, that doesn't help. And she, I was just trying. And then I'd say, stop trying, you know. And, like, and even so then out of college, I remember I was at a time where I think the medication I was on was wearing off or something. I was having these pretty debilitating effects on me. And I was just going through the ringer with it. And so my mom, the best comforter ever, would say, well, just don't feel that way. <laughs> like, thanks, mom. Made it all better. We did when you were three, so come right. on. <laughs> right. So one, the, being wary of it, it also is helpful to know, in that case, when it's my mom, she's trying her best. So I can let that roll off. However, there's some people who position themselves to where they want their words to sink in more. And so there's a level of that solidarity and security there. I will say my response to her in that time was a statement along the lines of, I need to know that even if I never get better, there are things that are still true for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is at least an encouragement to know that your faith doesn't have to be outsourced to people that will twist and pull and manipulate and, and cause harm. Hopefully that should compel you to the scriptures. Read Psalm 22 for yourself. Make sure I read it right. You know, that sense of, I think for me, getting that sense of ownership made my faith something secure and separate so that when others came and would have done harm, if it was rooted and anchored in them, I would have humbled. And so hopefully that's something that gives that encouragement. Mm -hmm. My uh, doctor is also an elder at my church. And he gave this example too, when we were talking even just about, because I still felt kind of bad, like, and also going to be off of this stuff by now or something. And he said, well, he was diabetic. He said, if I don't take insulin, I die. You know, it might be a little more extreme, but don't sell yourself short on needing some chemical help. And those are examples of people saying things, either if they're trying their best and it was innocent or somebody who was giving sound advice that gave permission. Those are some of the people I was able to combine. Or some people who, before they tried to fix, just gave a solution. I had some dear friends who let me crash on their couch for a week because otherwise I couldn't get up by myself in my own volition. So we'd get up for breakfast, their two-year-old, their three-year-old, and at the time, 23-year-old, crawling over to the breakfast table, all puffy-eyed and stuff, because most toddlers in the morning, it's like the worst time of their life. They're like pouting and crying because they're getting up in the morning. And it was funny because during that week, I was pretty much just an emotional toddler. And they just, they're couching me. And that's a crazy amount of, I guess, incarnational living. And so. Some of the other things to look for is know that you, not everybody needs to hear everything. I know we tend to knowing what ways, what things to lead with. For me, I'm often usually just feel free to be honest and open that either if I'm on medication, that I'm on medication. Or if I deal with something, that I deal with something. I don't then dive into every grueling detail until that becomes relevant or appears safe and helpful. In the same vein, you don't just want to share it with people that are almost trying to outshare each other putting it all on display. But if it's a community of people seeking Jesus together, that's a much better story. Yeah. I would probably add too, just some things like, how do they speak? 
about mental health challenges overall. How do they speak about people from hard places? Like if they hear stories of someone from hard places, how do they speak about other people's struggles? We can catch a lot. And then do they, you reference, do they try to fix people or point them to Jesus? I think that's really, because only Jesus knows someone's journey and, and really their heart. Yeah. And there's another important point too. It doesn't mean that you can only ever confide with people who've also experienced it. Now, that's a little bit of a misnomer that we tend to, you have no right unless you felt what I feel. Well, everybody feels it all differently to varying degrees. One of my most helpful friends who I work closely with and pastor, Mark Ashton here at CCC, is somebody who would say that he hasn't dealt with it really. And yet he's been one of the most supportive, tangibly and hopefully. And so I know that kind of subverts sometimes the thought that people who haven't feel, felt it are only going to try and get quick fixes. Now, he gives me a lot of good rational advice I'm going to bounce it off to like that idea of make sure you're getting enough sunlight and eating well, but it's not, it's mm-hmm. not offhand jargon advice, but generally like helping hold me accountable to things that will set me up better. Yeah. Yeah. When I probably will end with this for those of you, because some of you are struggling to find community and especially if you're in another country where there aren't really maybe Bible believing churches in your area or a body of believers in your area. So Holy Love Ministries does have two private online support groups. One is our Faith Over Fear support group. And then we also have a Holy Love community group. They're both on Facebook and we work really hard to keep them safe and to keep them supportive. So I will put that in the show notes. And so make sure you go there and and don't hesitate to reach out to us as well. Well, Josh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Yeah, thanks so much. And to our listener, thank you for listening. If you haven't already done so, I would encourage you to subscribe. And then you won't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, especially if you have friends who really struggle with depression and anxiety or any any mental health challenge. I guess that would be all of us probably to some extent, but and, and make sure to rate it. That encourages our team and it helps others to find it as well. Until next time, may you live as one who truly has been set free. Faith Over Fear is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. A powerful prayer life does not require hiking a mountain to be able to hear from God. God can meet us right in the middle of our busy lives to help, guide, and speak to us through prayer. I'm Christina Patterson, host of the Teach Us to Pray podcast, providing practical teaching and encouragement on how you can make prayer a natural and consistent part of your everyday life. I promise it won't require hiking a mountain, but you just might develop the faith to move one. Listen and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.